think I'm, I'm going to preach in the bass after that. I uh, spent a lot of the last two weeks preparing for tonight's sermon. I was just fascinated with my research, and I was digging deeper and deeper. And the the more I got into the research, the more fascinated I became come, became with it. And I I pulled it all together, and I went to sing song last night. By the way, the freshman won vocals last night. By the way, congratulations, Chelsea. Um, so I get to sing song, and I happened at intermission to talk to my father-in-law, Lou David, about my sermon. And I was going into it. I was really excited about it. And he looked at me and said, Greg, about three people are going to be interested in this. <laughs> and he was right. He was right, so I'm not going to be presenting that sermon. But I will say it just in passing. I, I have posted some notes, just a few notes, on my website and on the church website about the NIV 2010 edition. NIV is being updated starting next month. All the print editions of the New International Version uh, will be updated. All the 1984 editions will no longer be in circulation. And there are some changes. And so, as with any translation, we want it to be as understandable to us today as it possibly can. But we're also relying on men to make, or committees, to make these decisions about what the meaning is. And so it is it would benefit all of us to really look at the changes in the translation to see if they are doctrinally correct and are not just being influenced by culture. And so I encourage everyone, as you think about the NIV and going out and purchase that, look at the translator's notes. There's links to the translator's notes, and it really gets into depth into some of the changes. Frankly, some of the changes, I think, are very beneficial and clear up a lot of things, put things in context. Uh, based on scholarship and changes in the English language and makes it a lot more understanding doctrinally. However, there are some things that also I, I bring into question or are a great concern to me as well. So uh, I would encourage you, if you're interested in such a thing, and you won't have to endure a 30-minute sermon on it, uh, Lou David, thank you, to look at that and see, just be able to discern whether you think the translation is something for you. And Shelton did a great job this morning, by the way. It's great to see all the talent we have in this congregation. We've always known that we've had wonderful talent. We have more song leaders than anybody else. We have people who can to present uh, lessons and present the sermons, and Shelton uh, definitely is a hard act to follow, as is apparent by the people who didn't show up to hear me <laughs> preach tonight. I blame Lane, quite frankly, for saying that I'm preaching tonight, and I was like, oh, I'm <laughs> yeah, that's probably not true. <sighs> yeah, have your Bibles, take them out. We're going to do this the old-fashioned way. We're going to look in the good old book and paper Bible. We're not going to have it projected up on the screen. Turn to Luke chapter 15. A couple weeks ago, I was privileged to be able to, to preach a sermon from this text. And this is a follow-up. This is the second in the series of this very rich chapter. It's rich because there's so many things that Jesus says in three short parables. Now, my last sermon was about uh, the parable of the good father, which we would traditionally know as the par parable of the prodigal son, comparing the younger son and the older son and how both, both were lost. One from his selfishness, the other one from his self-righteousness, but it was the good father 
who extended his peace and his shalom to them and saved them. So we continue in that series of study in Luke chapter 15, verses, starting in verses 1. I will be reading from the New International Version. This is my old uh, falling apart New International Version, 1984 version of this. And um, I'll begin in verse 1 and I will read through chapter 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. To bring the setting into focus here, Jesus is talking to a group of people that the Pharisees would consider sinners. Those who are apathetic to the law or just flat, flat out do not follow the law as the Pharisees understand it a lot of which are based on oral traditions, traditions of the rabbis. And the Pharisees took a very uh, dim view of Jesus associating with his people because a Pharisee would never associate with sinners like that. Now that's very important to note as we move through this study, that the Pharisees would consider it shameful in an honor-shame society to associate with people like that who do not obey the law and do not obey the law as they obeyed the law. And so they took great issue with it and they muttered about Jesus. Now Jesus, hearing this, addresses them about it. And that's where we get the three parables. It's important to know that Jesus is talking not just to an author who's writing this down. This is an event that happened and he was addressing a specific group of people for a specific reason. In this case, it was the Pharisees. Now, for those of you who don't remember what a Pharisee is, a Pharisee is, is not just the law keepers. They're the ones who would create additional laws, which were later recorded in the Mishnah, as a, uh, above and beyond the laws that were handed down by Moses to the Jewish people. They would create additional things that had to be followed. They became very religious in their dealings. They were very self-righteous and felt that only they who obeyed everything in their minds perfectly were favored. They were the law keepers extreme. They even created laws that they had to follow. And so it's this group that Jesus addresses with this particular parable, where Jesus on a surface, gives a very simple story about a sheep being lost and a shepherd finding the sheep. But it's that very law, that oral tradition, that was recorded in the early centuries. Now, oral tradition means that there were rabbis who were able to bring authority over the law. They were able to add, as in, 
they were able to bind laws, they were add to the laws, or they were able to loose the laws, take away from the laws. And it was these rabbis of the Jewish people that would create additional things, these additional laws that had to be followed. And it's interesting to note that being a shepherd was one of those laws. Now, in the Old Testament, the shepherd was used as a metaphor for God and his caring. We can reflect back on Psalms 23, that, uh, and the, the good shepherd in that psalm. It has been a metaphor for God, but somehow the Pharisees had forgotten that because the rabbis had ha- handed down their tradition, and it is recorded in the Mishnah that, that uh, being a shepherd was forbidden because... You couldn't keep the law as a shepherd. Think about it. It was a prescribed trade because in the rabbi's view, a shepherd had to work on the Sabbath. You can't just ignore your flock. You have to be associated with unclean things and get out and and work on the Sabbath day. So rabbis had handed down a law that said you cannot be a herdsman is the exact terminology in the Mishnah, the recording of that oral tradition, that these Pharisees were abiding by. So even though it was a metaphor for God, they had lost sight of the fact, and being a shepherd was something that no good Jewish man would teach his son to be. Because according to the rabbis, it was impossible to keep the law and be a shepherd. So now this seemingly innocent story about a shepherd and a lost sheep really comes into focus as the Pharisees hear this. Now, shepherds of the time would quite often take their sheep and and take them out, and they would would herd them wherever they could get uh, pasture. I've uh, had the opportunity to be in a foreign country at a time where there is, are still shepherds that shepherd sheep, and I happened to be flying over uh, early morning over a, an area of this country, and, and the shepherds had their sheep, and they were lined up just like a traffic jam you would see in Dallas, just with sheep heading out to the country. And what they would do is they would go wherever they could to find pasture. Little has changed in that country, country since the Middle East. In fact, in that culture, the shepherds kind of had a dim view from the rest of the population because they would force themselves on other people's land to graze their sheep because that's where the forage was. So it's in this context, the Pharisees say, hear Jesus saying in the, in the scripture, he starts and says, suppose one of you. I'd like to imagine that Jesus pointed to those Pharisees. Suppose one of you had some sheep. And the Pharisees go, that's a forbidden, that's a forbidden trade. I can't do that. And we don't like shepherds. I don't want anything to do with that. And so he brings them in with that very statement. Suppose one of you, and then he goes on and it makes it even more aggressive of a story to them. Suppose one of you loses, has a hundred sheep, and loses one of them. Now, the second thing you need to understand about that culture and the culture today, and in many cultures of today, 
It was just part of the language, the requirement of the language, that you never blamed yourself. No Pharisee, no Jew, no person of that time would say, I lost a hundred sheep, or I lost one of the sheep. You just don't blame yourself. Now, the conversation may have been along the lines of, uh, one of my sheep wandered away. See the difference? You blame the other thing. You don't blame yourself. And especially in an honor-shame society where it's everything to bring honor to yourself and, and the worst thing to bring shame, would you ever blame yourself in a conversation? And so you can imagine Jesus really engaging these Pharisees with this very aggressive language. It's not as innocent as it sounds. Jesus is saying, suppose one of you are a shepherd, one of the things you're not supposed to do, and you lose a sheep. He's blaming them. And then in a very quick succession, it goes off and, and says, does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? What he's introducing in that particular case is a bad shepherd. He's saying, suppose you're a, not only a shepherd, suppose you're a bad shepherd. Now, shepherds have to be pretty diligent about their task. You can't just happen to keep up with everybody. I was in Germany one time, another place where there are active shepherds, and, and I happened to watch a shepherd going across the field with some sheep, and he had some dogs working, and they were constantly working, that, working those flocks, work, working the, the herds and, and moving them around. You have to be very diligent. But what he's saying is that you, shepherds, Pharisees, Suppose you're a bad shepherd. But then very quick succession, he turns it on and he goes around and, and he says, um, and he finds it. In verse 5, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. He turns it around very quickly and makes the, the good shepherd, the bad shepherd, a good shepherd. And you say, Greg, you're losing me. You've talked a lot about bad shepherds. He's pulling them in, and he's saying, suppose one of you is a bad shepherd, then suddenly he finds it, and he, and he makes it a good shepherd. The good shepherd, bad shepherd, good shepherd story is not unprecedented. See, we sit here and go, okay, where's Greg going with this? Bad shepherd, good shepherd. Okay, they lost it, he found it. The shepherd lost it, he's bad. He found it, it's good. But to the Pharisee, these were Bible experts. They spent their youth memorizing the Bible. Part of their education system, they knew very well what the scriptures were. And so when Jesus continues with his story, he brings them in, he shocks them, and they're aggressive, he's talking about them being bad shepherds and good shepherds, a little light went on in their head that probably doesn't go on in our head because we don't memorize the Old Testament like they did. Because they will have recalled verses, passages like Psalms 23 about a good shepherd. But more importantly, in Jeremiah chapter... I went blank on... I usually am good at keeping... Jeremiah chapter 23, the, the concept of good shepherd, bad shepherd is introduced. And they remember these scriptures... And if you 
have a Bible with an Old Testament, turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. And we're going to bring into focus what the Pharisees heard, what they comprehended when Jesus said those words. Ezekiel chapter 34. If you get a chance, read the whole chapter. But I'm going to skip through because uh, I don't want uh, Jim, who's... Jim Goldsmith, by the way, is he's on the, he's already told me he's going to give me the thumbs up and thumbs down right about now about whether to speed up, slow down, or get off the stage. <laughs> so we're going to skip around a little bit, but I think you're going to see, you're going to have an aha moment here. Because it's not just a little innocent story about a, a cute little shepherd and a cute little lamb. Jesus has drawn the Pharisees in. And he's bringing them back to a story they knew all so well. Look at Ezekiel chapter 34, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesying against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You are not strengthened, you are not, you have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost sheep. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. What Jesus is saying is that, Pharisees, you are bad shepherds. God has given you the authority as shepherds of Israel to take care of this flock, and you haven't done it. These sinners that I'm eating with, you've neglected to bring back because you're worried about yourselves. And so this bad shepherd, good shepherd, carries on in verse 11. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered. Good shepherd. In those few words, Jesus has brought in the Pharisees and said, Pharisees, as shepherds of Israel, you have failed in your duty as a shepherd. I am blaming you. But the good shepherd, your sovereign Lord, your God, me, he says. I'm the good shepherd. And so the imagery begins to take shape as the Pharisees are brought in and they realize what Jesus is talking about. And then we, we read back, you can turn back to Luke chapter 15. We're going to go back to those verses. Because as, we, as Jesus builds the picture in a few short words, masterfully painting a picture of what a good shepherd should be, we read a few words that it first fall flat on us because the majority of us, some people in this back corner excluded, don't shepherd flocks much. 
don't shepherd animals. And so it falls a little flat on us. And so when we read in verse 5, starting reading that again, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Those little words, joyfully puts them on his shoulders, we're like, eh, that's a cute little picture. If you've ever put a sheep on your shoulders and carried it, it would be very hard to do that joyfully. Now consider this, and that we already know that the, the sheep went astray and it got lost in the open country. And in the, in the surrounding area where he's telling this story, that open country is not nice, ideal pastures that are green and maintained. It's very rugged, very rough. And a sheep, when it wanders away, if you've had any dealings with sheep, you know that they, they wander away and when they get panicky, they'll lie down in a little in a crevice or a crack and they'll just start bleeding and they won't do anything until they, something, somebody goes to them and rescues them. And so it's from this, once the shepherd finds this lost sheep who refuses to walk because of being scared, because they are, are, are a herding animal, herding animal, the shepherd is left with no choice but to lift it up carry it on his shoulders, and walk over the same rugged terrain. Now, we're not talking about little lambs. We're talking about sheep that could be up to 70 pounds and carrying over long distances. Now, it's very hard to be joyful if you've ever been in that situation. But here Jesus is saying that this shepherd joyfully picks it up and carries it a long distance. That image right there, the image of a joyful shepherd carrying the sheep that had been lost and had been found and joyfully sacrificing himself to save that sheep was not lost on the early Christians. Today, the symbol of the cross is one of our most enduring images of salvation today. But it was not that in the first century. Not at all. Very few examples of early Christians using the cross as a symbol of their salvation, probably because it was, it was so raw on them to have a cross where people were murdered and crucified as a symbol of their worship. It would be just the same for us as if instead of a pulpit up here, we put an electric chair or a flat table where a lethal injection would be given. We would not stand for that as our place of worship, in our place of worship. And neither, apparently, scholars assume that's why there are very few crosses in the early church that were used as part of their symbolism of, of salvation. But you know what is? I found this very interesting. In the catacombs in Rome, carved into the walls, on fresco paintings in house, known house churches for early Christians. Multiple examples of this one symbol of salvation can be found in the early church. And that's the symbol of a shepherd carrying a sheep. They knew very well the sacrifice the shepherd had to make to save that sheep. And 
in the very early church, as the, the reading on this, as the, as the symbology grew over time, the sheep got smaller and smaller. And now you'll see it in our, our Bible classes. You see a, you know, like a little lamb thrown over the shoulder and, and you, know, you see the shepherd walking along. Easy care, no problem. Got the little lamb here. But that's not the way it was for the early church. And if you look at the examples that I've seen in the paintings and the sculptures, the sheep is very large, larger than the shepherd in some cases. Because the imagery is that the salvation that the early Christians enjoyed was a burden. It was a sacrifice to the shepherd. And so in this parable, Jesus is saying, Israel, Pharisees, you failed as your job as a shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. I'm going to find the lost sheep. And when I find them, I'm going to joyfully take the burden of those lost sheep on me. And I'm going to carry that sheep to safety. By now, we should be thinking of some very applicable scriptures. And if you turn to uh, John chapter 10, verses one, uh, verses 18... John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus himself uses the shepherd parable in a couple of different circumstances. In this particular case, he makes sure that he talks about something that would be unheard of. Unless it was a very good shepherd. And he, he I said verse 18. John chapter 10, verse 11 he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. In verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. The message to the Pharisees was that the starting of his transition to what we now worship as the cross, the crucifixion. And while the shepherd does on his own take the burden, there's nothing the sheep can do, not a thing the sheep can do. It's helpless. Only through the, the grace and the goodwill and the sacrifice of the shepherd is that sheep able, able to be saved. And finally, we read in this another common theme about all of these parables. What we have is just a reminder, we have the, the Pharisees grumbling about Jesus talking to sinners and trying to bring him down. And he pulls them into the conversation, talking about how they have failed as, as shepherds. But he is going to be the shepherd who ultimately lays down his life at great sacrifice to himself for the lost sheep. And the theme that keeps getting replaced in this parable and the parable of the coin and the parable of the lost son is that there is great joy and rejoicing when he does that. And as we read in Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 through 13, Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 through 18, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep 
and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And when he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. When Jesus saves a sheep, when the good shepherd saves a sheep, there's great rejoicing over that sheep and over us. When Jesus saves us as the good shepherd, he rejoices. He's joyful. Because we have been brought back, not of our own accord, but because of him. See, in this short story, just a few lines, so rich with the culture and the meaning and the theology of Christ, he's bringing in these people who are so critical of him, searching out the lost sheep. And if it didn't cut them to the heart, which it apparently didn't because he had to go through two other stories, then they were so focused on their self-righteousness, they were putting the remainder of the sheep, of which God had already prophesied would happen. What was their job to do in Jeremiah and Ezekiel? But they failed. And because they failed, Jesus... God, through Jesus, picks up the, the title of Good Shepherd. And through great sacrifice of himself, he brings the lost sheep. And through that, we see, we receive a great message about grace, about forgiveness, about the passion that Jesus Christ had and has for us lost sinners. Because really, we're just in this world bleeding, cowering in the darkness, unable to save ourselves. And with that, we, we bring up the image of the, the good shepherd with a very large sheep, a burdensome sheep on his shoulders. And that's us. And as he's carrying us through his sacrifice his willing willingly laboring for us he has great joy and that's the beauty of the gospel that's the beauty of the gospel that we are tasked with today we in a sense have taken on some of the responsibility of the Pharisees I'm at great risk here because I'm going off notes who knows what's going to come out. But we've picked up some of the mantle of Pharisees because part of our commission is to bring that gospel, not a gospel of self-righteousness, not a gospel of, of taking advantage of the sinner, but a gospel of the good shepherd, the only one through his sacrifice that can bring in the lost sheep into our fold. And it's our job to make him a welcoming, joyful, rejoicing place for them. That's the parable of the good shepherd. And if you need to respond to that gospel, you can do so tonight as we stand and sing. Hey.